this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast, Walking with Dante, a podcast which, you know, we are walking to Purgatorio. We're actually on the second episode of the same passage. We're at Purgatorio, Canto 1, lines 49 through 84. This is the opening canto of the second third of Dante's masterpiece comedy, and we have gotten here the long way, all the way through Inferno, and reached a passage that is so crucial to understanding the work of Purgatorio ahead of us that we are spending two episodes of this podcast exploring it. In the last episode, we talked about Virgil and Dante in this passage. This is the moment in which Virgil responds to the sole old man standing next to Dante as they have exited Inferno and stood underneath the glorious stars. In this episode of the podcast, we're going to focus on who this is, Cato of Utica, why this is so crucial to understanding the work of Purgatorio, and what it finally does to Purgatorio as it sets us up for the journey ahead. Before that, let me read the passage, Canto 1, lines 49 through 84, in my English translation. You can find this on my website, markscarbro.com. You can read it there, drop a comment, print it off, do as you like. Otherwise, we're going to carry on as we have before with this same passage, a continuation of the last episode of this podcast. At that point, my master Virgil reached out for me with words, with his hands, with his gestures. He made me show obeisance with my knee and my brow. Then he answered the old man, I didn't come under my own steam. A lady descended from heaven. Because of her prayers, I gave this man my company as his aid. But if you want a more complete explanation of our conditions, such as it really is, I'm certainly not the one to deny what you wish. This man hasn't seen his last sunset, although his folly brought him pretty close to it. So close that there was very little time left for him to turn back. As I said, I was given a mandate to go to his aid. There was literally no other way except this one that I've pressed him onto. I've shown him all the enraged peoples, and now I intend to show him those spirits who are purified under your jurisdiction. How I brought him here? That would take a long time to tell. A great power from way up above has come down to help me lead him to the spot where he can see and hear you. May it please you now to hail his arrival. He goes in search of freedom, which is so very precious, as he who has given up his life for it well knows. You know what I'm talking about, because freedom didn't make your death so bitter back in Utica, where you left the garment that will shine on that glorious last day. We haven't broken any of the eternal edicts, for he's alive, and Minos doesn't bind me. You see... I'm from that circle where your Marsha, with pure eyes, prays that you, O oh sacred breast, still hold her as your own. Because of her love for you, I pray your favor. Let us go on through your seven realms. I'll report back word of you to her if you permit yourself to be mentioned way down there below. Last time we talked all about Virgil and the perhaps hairline fractures in Virgil's character that this passage exposes. We talked about Dante, the obeisance. Now we want to turn to the identification of this figure, Cato of Utica, 
and why this is such a problem, <laughs> such a huge problem, a 700-year problem for comedy. So let's get started. First of all, as I said, this is Cato of Utica, or as he is sometimes called, Cato the Younger, because he was the great-grandson of Cato the Censor. He was born, this Cato of Utica, in 95 before Common Era. He was known as someone who followed the Stoic school of philosophy toward its acceptance of the travails of life, its attitude toward the travails of life, and even, in fact, at times, we would have to say, its emphasis on the, what do I want to say, the onlyness, is that a word, onlyness? The onlyness of this life. Many Stoics denied an afterlife. Not sure about Cato's exact stance on the afterlife. I'll tell you why in a minute. He sided with Pompey in the civil war against Julius. And this is much told in Lucan's Pharsalia. After the Battle of Pharsalia, Cato then joined up with Scipio in Africa, and after Julius conquered almost all of Africa except Utica, Cato took his own life there, and thus we now call him Cato of Utica. He took his own life there after, and here's the big after, after spending his last night reading Plato to assure himself about the immortality of the soul. This may play into the passage here in front of us. I don't know which part of that Dante knows. There's some bits he may know from Cicero. Most of it he knows from Lucan. We're going to come back to Cicero and Stoics in a bit and why Cato may be put here as a Stoic, but without a doubt, he is, in fact, the guardian, the gatekeeper of purgatory. How do we know that? Well, several ways. One, the mention of Utica. This brings up exactly who Cato is and the mention of suicide. And to most people of Dante's ilk, Utica and suicide together mentioned for a figure would mean Cato. Earlier in the passage, you notice that there's that bit about his hair falling down in two strands. Remember from the passage before this one, Dante sees his mottled gray hair and it's falling down into a beard in two strands. Well, we know in the Pharsalia in book two, lines 372 to 376, that Cato did not cut his hair after the Civil War began. So that's a reference definitely to this figure. I told you back then that I didn't think you could say this was Cato based on the hair and beard alone. But now that we have Utica and suicide, now we're pretty clear who this is. You will note that Cato is not named and will never be named in the passage. We want to talk about that in just a minute. Let's go on and say how else we would know him because Virgil says something about his sacred breast in line 80. And Virgil is actually cribbing a passage from Dante's own Convivio. In book 4, chapter 5, line 16, Dante refers to Cato's sacred breast, this breast that yearned for liberty. I'm not suggesting that Virgil has read the Convivio. I'm I'm saying that he's mimicking something Dante said. And so since we can see the echo, I wish Virgil had read the Convivio. But since we can see the echo between the two, we know that Dante feels this breast of Cato is specifically sacred. So when Virgil mentions 
the sacred breast, we hear this echo back in something that Dante has already written about Cato's love of liberty. And then finally, there's this bit about Marcia, that Marcia is in limbo with me, Virgil says, praying for you. We want to talk more about that in a minute. And we know that Marcia is Cato's second <laughs> and third wife. But more on that. Oh, that's difficult. More on that one in a minute. There's a lot of talk about why Dante never names this figure. Now, we're used to Dante speaking paraphrastically. Remember our big phrase, walking around paraphrastically? So we're used to Dante speaking paraphrastically about figures across Inferno. Halmner, the late Dantiste from Princeton, makes quite a deal here about uh, not mentioning Cato as an evidence of Dante's uncomfortableness with putting this pagan Roman suicide here. I don't think so. I think that we're not being treated to his uncomfortableness. Rather, I think we're being invited further and further into the poem. Without naming Cato, Dante is pulling us deeper and deeper into the riddle of Cato's presence here. I see it as actually a positive literary move, not one built out of fear and insecurity. Okay, let's talk about the problem of Marcia, Cato's second and third wife. Marcia was the daughter of Lucius Martius Philippus. We've already seen Marcia in Inferno. We talked about this last time. She's listed off amongst figures in Inferno. She was indeed the second wife of Cato and bore him several children. After the third child, Cato ended up giving her to his friend Hortensius. His friend proclaimed apparently a love or affection for Marcia, and Cato then bequested, oh, God, the misogyny here kills me, but okay, let's just do it. Cato bequested Marcia to Hortensius. On Hortensius' death, Marcia returned to Cato and became his wife again. This return is per Lucan's Pharsalia. And when she returns, let's just say, she comes back rather weary. She basically says, you know, I've borne children to two men now, and I'm worn out, and I just want to spend the rest of my life with you. And then Cato goes off to the Civil Wars, and that doesn't really happen. There's a kind of sadness about Marcia that, you know, here she is, this baggage that's been misogynistically thrown around, and she comes back saying, basically, I'm just exhausted, and I guess I'll live the rest of my life with you. But He's off to the wars. We should make one side note here about Marcia. She also comes up in the Convivio, Dante's book on the love of philosophy, the banquet that philosophy is. In book four, chapter 28, lines 15 through 19, Marcia's return to Cato is likened to the soul's return to God after it has been wandering in the world. So Dante uses her as an allegory to explain the soul's return to God, which means in that allegory that Cato is God, that Cato is in some way already aligned with the deity. We're setting ourselves up in convivio for his 
his position here in Purgatorio. But that position is complicated. Let's, before we get to the complication, let's talk about Virgil's claim that Marcia is praying for Cato. This is a curious claim at the end of the passage. Virgil says, essentially, Marcia, she's down there in limbo with me, and she still prays for you from there. And we have to pause and think, wait, praise? Do people in hell pray? Is that something they do? There are several ways to answer this question, and I'm not going to actually land on any way. I'm going to let you continue to puzzle this out because I think it's left as a puzzle in the text. One, and this is a way I will tell you right off I reject, one, Virgil's lying. Marcia's not praying. He's lying in order to flatter Cato so they can get on to purgatory. I I don't buy this at all. Why I don't buy this is you have to place too much irony on Virgil. I don't think you can place so much really almost postmodern irony onto Virgil as to make him a liar who is willing to say anything to get them into purgatory. That doesn't seem right to me. So I don't think he's lying about Marcia praying, but you have to consider it as an option amongst the answers. A second answer is, yes, she is indeed praying for Cato because, and here's how we would justify that, because back in Inferno, Canto 2, when Beatrice comes down to Virgil, she says, if you'll go save Dante, then I'll sing your praises to God up in heaven. Remember this? We made a big deal out of this because I said, what good does it do, Virgil? Who cares that Beatrice prays for him in heaven? It's not going to get him out of limbo, right? Well, maybe it did. Here he is standing on the shores of purgatory. We would justify Marcia's being able to pray for Cato based on on Beatrice's being able to sing Virgil's praises in heaven. So maybe she does pray in in limbo for her husband, Cato. All right. There's a third answer. Is she praying? Well, sort of. The, <laughs> the sort of answer is because she's in limbo. And in limbo, she, remember, lives without hope but otherwise without sin. That's what we're told in Inferno 4 about the souls in limbo. Now, we quibbled about that when we passed that passage in limbo, but let's just let it stand and say, well, maybe she is praying because living in limbo without hope means that she's living there, and this would be the Dantean perspective, with her humanity intact. So while she has no hope of salvation, she is still human enough to wish the best for her former husband. So she is indeed praying for him, sort of. In other words, it doesn't really make a difference But because her humanity is intact, she still hopes the best for Cato. And the fourth answer is no, she's not praying. And here we have to pin it back on Virgil. We have to say that the pagan Virgil doesn't understand prayer. He doesn't know what it is. So he mistakes the size of limbo. Remember, everybody's standing around sighing. He mistakes the size of limbo for prayers. In that mistake, he doesn't really know what 
prayer is, but he hears all those murmuring sighs of limbo, and he assumes that Marcia is praying for her husband, former husband, Cato. We're going to have to hold a bit till the next passage. Cato says something that will color these answers a bit in the next passage. But those are the four that you can take away. Virgil's lying. Yes, she can pray in limbo. She, no, she can sort of pray in limbo because her humanity is intact. Or no, she's not praying. She's sighing as they all are. But Virgil mistakes that for praying because he, too, as she, is a pagan. Which brings us to the question, is Cato redeemed? Now, I know this may seem like a funny question to ask because here he is, opening Canto of Purgatorio, and I've told you everybody from here on out is redeemed, so clearly I think so. But I know it's a funny question, and part of the reason we have to ask it is because the vast bulk of the early commentators don't see Cato as redeemed. This is how they get around it. They essentially say, this isn't really Cato. This is an allegorical representation of Cato. It's an idealized, symbolic Cato that's not the flesh and blood, more formally, flesh and blood Cato. I don't buy it. There's nobody that we have met throughout Inferno up to this point who is solely the embodiment of an allegory. I can't can't see it. I can't see anybody who doesn't have some physical reality about them. And so this figure must have a physical reality about them. Believe it or not, there are even critics later on after the early commentators who claim that Cato is never saved, that he's going to hang out here on the shore of purgatory for the rest of eternity. I don't think this is the case because in line 75, Virgil essentially says you're going to get the glorious resurrection body of the redeemed. Virgil essentially tells us that Cato is headed toward paradise in the redeemed, resurrected body. And I don't think Virgil's lying there or being mistaken there. I think we're being cued that Cato is indeed headed toward heaven. (laughs) That's a problem in and of itself. The lone descent in all of the early commentators is Dante's own son, Pietro di Dante. In 1340, Pietro di Dante said, yes. Cato is saved, and he bases it on something that Cato says in the next passage. We'll talk about that next time. I think there's enough hanging there on the glorious resurrected body bit in line 75 to say even in this passage, true, Cato's redeemed. But now what do we do with that information? What does saying yes cause to happen? Here's what it causes to happen. One, We have to change the notion of suicide (laughs) from Pierre de la Vena back in Inferno. Cato, we're told in this passage, committed suicide for liberty. And that's certainly how it's presented in Lucan's Pharsalia. He so much loved liberty, he couldn't stand the destruction of the Roman Republic in favor of Julius's empire. And so he offed himself after a night of reading Plato. What that did just then is it changed the notion of suicide in the poem. When we were with the suicides in their wood, it was not the motive 
of their suicide, but the action of it that damned them there. Pierre de Lavagna and the other unnamed suicide are there because they committed suicide. Doesn't matter why they committed suicide. And here they are in this passage. Apparently, motive counts for more than action. Do I think Dante thought that back in Inferno? No, I don't. Do I think he thinks it now? Yes, I do. Which means there's been a huge change in the poem. There's been a huge change in the theology of the poem. Why you did it counts rather than just that you did it. That nuance, that bit of ambiguity, that bit of gray is what makes Purgatorio so human. I mean, listen, Cato was against Julius, just like Brutus and Cassius. We saw them in Satan's mouths being chewed up. We saw them along with Judas Iscariot being chewed up by Satan. Once again, motive must count for something, not just action. And because of Lucan, Cato's action is in fact part of this problem that Dante has with Julius. Julius is not necessarily a positive figure. Yes, we did see him in limbo, listed off. He's standing there amongst others in limbo. But he remains, and this is a prime moment in which we can point to it, he remains a problematic figure for Dante because he did bring about the destruction of the Republic. However, the empire is what allowed for the birth of Jesus because it, it is the decree to be taxed that causes Mary and Joseph to get up and go to Bethlehem, which causes Jesus to be born. So the empire functions as kind of the what foundation, the underlay that allows the birth of Jesus. Julius proves a difficult figure for Dante, but apparently, again, Opposing Julius is about motive, not just action. But there's another way we can think about saying yes here. And this is my developing sense of Purgatorio. It's my own theory. And let me hand it to you. It's kind of complicated and kind of high-end literary. But let me hand it to you and we'll see what we can do with it. It goes to Augustine's Confessions. That's where I'm headed. Augustine is a funny figure in comedy. Augustine's writings, St. Augustine, they sit underneath comedy as very few other texts do. Augustine's Confessions, his city of God. We've already come across references to it in Inferno, and we're going to come across a lot more. Here's the problem. Augustine is barely in comedy. We see him once, way at the top of Paradiso, in Canto 32, and he's just in a list of other people up there at the top of heaven. <laughs> it's kind of an offhanded reference. Oh, here he is amongst a lot of other people. Ta-da! And yet, we've had so many references to him, and they will start to proliferate as we move through Purgatorio, and then in Paradiso, they'll get crazy, the references to Augustine's works. I think that Augustine is sitting here at the back of Purgatorio, and let me explain why. 
in the Confessions, Augustine makes three changes in his conversion process. He starts out as a Stoic, part of the Cicero, back to Cicero, the Cicero school of Stoicism. And he argues for a duality of good and evil in the universe in a stoic kind of way, but he does start and cut his teeth toward his ultimate Christian conversion on stoicism. Then Augustine moves to the Platonists. Now, you might think of Plato as shadows on a cave wall. You might think of Plato as the great apology of Socrates before his death. But what Augustine focuses on is the immutability of the soul. That is, the soul is permanent. And this is the second step in Augustine's conversion. First at Stoicism, then at Platonism in the Confessions, and finally he makes his full conversion to Christianity. I think this structure underlies Purgatorio. The first nine cantos of Purgatorio, and here I'm going to tell you the truth. The first nine cantos of Purgatorio are the places where those waiting to get into purgatory have to wait. And we're going to have nine cantos of people just hanging out and waiting. They can't even get through the gate yet. They are here for various reasons that they can't get through the gate yet. But nine cantos and the over arching tenor of these nine cantos is the stoicism with which they meet their fate. They meet their fate in a kind of almost stoic, I have to endure this, I have to wait here stance before they enter the gate of purgatory. And there is one glaring exception who we'll see does nothing but whine. He's our moment of humor. And what is that whining? It's anti-stoicism. It's he's going to be, I don't want to, I don't want to wait here. I don't want to climb the mountain. (laughs) He's great. He's my favorite figure in all of purgatory. I don't want to. He he would be me. So he's the anti-Stoic. Everybody else is enduring their fate. When we enter the gate of purgatory, then we come to the seven realms of Cato's kingdom that has already been mentioned by Virgil. Those seven realms are where the souls are purgating themselves. And this, I would argue, is the platonic or platonist section of purgatorio. And I don't mean anything, again, about Plato's concept of the Republic. Dante wouldn't know any of this. What he knows is Augustine. And what he knows is Augustine's emphasis on the immutability of the soul, that the soul itself is permanent and thus can be eventually perfected. It's that thus that is problematic, but it is permanent and thus can be perfected. We enter a long platonic or platonist section of purgatorio, not in ways, again, that you might think about Plato, but in ways that Augustine thought about Plato. And finally, when we hit the top of Purgatorio, we have Dante's conversion in front of Beatrice when she arrives in the poem. And by the way, Dante's conversion at the top of Purgatorio is why I don't buy that there's any conversion down in front of Satan. Yes, I know he becomes half dead, half alive when he looks at Satan in Inferno. And I know a lot of people think that's a conversion moment. I don't buy it. Reason I don't buy it is because the real conversion happens with Beatrice at the top of Purgatorio. So that structure, Stoic, Platonist, Christian, 
underlies Purgatorio just as it underlies Augustine's confessions as his narrative journey. And so that we have a prime stoic standing here as the gatekeeper is cluing us, in my opinion, to that structure. Now, let me just say, this is my idea. I don't know any other scholar who has said this, but I'm still rather convinced it helps us understand why Cato's here. And here's what else Cato's position here does. It heightens the tragedy of Virgil. I mean, if Cato, a pagan suicide, can be here, why can't Virgil be here. And this is what's so astounding about Purgatorio. The pilgrim will climb the mountain while being led and while being at times arm in arm with someone who will never be redeemed. The pilgrim is headed toward the top, toward Beatrice. All along, he's going to be with Virgil who is not supposed to be here, who is not redeemed. And that Cato is here heightens the tragedy of Virgil. It gets sadder. Even though this is a journey of (laughs) up and up toward better and better and better and better, there is always a shade of melancholy with us. It's Virgil. He's standing right there. Virgil, who's not getting better and better with every cornice, who's not going through the seven realms and purgating sins. No, in fact, Virgil is not supposed to be here. And the position of Cato here heightens Virgil's tragedy. And maybe, and this is a maybe, maybe the gravitational well of Cato's position here, the pagan Roman suicide, the pagan stoic Roman suicide here, maybe his position here is a gravitational well that pulls Virgil a little bit. And maybe this is why Virgil recognizes him. And maybe this is why Virgil knows there are seven realms and why Virgil knows that Cato will get a resurrected body. Because the gravitational well that Cato forms in the poem even alters Virgil's character. And I don't mean that Virgil knows he's changing. I mean that this gravitational well of Cato causes the poet to pull Virgil a little toward Cato and suddenly Virgil knows more than he ought and suddenly Virgil seems to understand as a pagan more than he ought. This is all the result, finally, of love moving the fence. Love has moved the fence such that a pagan stoic Roman suicide... (laughs) can stand as the gatekeeper to eternity, to the eternity of the redeemed. But, and this is the but I want to add to my love moves the fence hypothesis. Whenever love moves the fence, it causes hairline fractures. There's no way it doesn't. When you uproot a fence and move it, You have caused holes in the ground. You've caused little fractures everywhere, things that may come back to haunt you. (laughs) I do a lot of gardening. And I can tell you that when I uproot a plant and move it across the yard and put it someplace else in my, I have about two acres gardened, and it's all flower gardens and ornamental gardens. When I move something, I know that that hole I just made is going to (laughs) come. 
<laughs> it's going to come back to haunt me because ultimately it's going to become a divot and I'm going to have to keep filling it in and I'm going to have to work with it to get it right again. That hole is going to be worse than the replanted bush or shrub over there. So love moving the fence causes that hole and it causes fractures. And all those fractures that I pointed to last time in the last episode of this podcast about Virgil's character, it's all part of moving the fence. It's natural. It's what happens when you change the structure, when you change the rules of the game. It's what happens when you push out and expand more. There are going to be fractures. I mean, you built everything based on these structures. Now you move it, mm, things are going to move a little bit. There's going to be hairline fractures. It's the cost of moving the fence. It's not that moving the fence just gets you a comedic ending. Ta-da, happy, everybody's thrilled. It's that it does get you a comedic ending. But in the end, it also causes fractures, which is why you don't want to do it, which is why you're resistant to it. You know that. And I think we can see those fractures here in Virgil's character. I think we can see the fractures starting in the poem here because love is moving the fence to make Cato the gatekeeper of purgatory. But it's important to do it because of the overall structure, Stoicism, Platonism, Christianity. And it's important to do it because ultimately you can't restrict the afterlife only to those who think as you do. Oh, there's a big one. We're going to have to hold that one all the way up through Paradiso. But true it is, and true it will become for Dante. Two whole episodes on this passage from Inferno. Kind of insane that we did this, but important, too, because Cato is such an unbelievable figure. We're not done with him. He's going to enter the text in the next episode and come back with a reply to Virgil, which will clarify some of our discussion and, <laughs> and make more ambiguous other parts of our discussion. So come back for that. Rate, like this podcast, do those things that you have to do. Thanks for being on this journey with me. Again, this is an unsupported podcast, so your rates and your likes are the only way to support it, and I really appreciate that so much. Up next, Cato's reply to Virgil and our first moments in which we really discover what it's going to take to get us through Purgatorio. I'm Mark Scarborough, and I am ready for more. Mm-hmm.